This is Story and Rain Talks, the Story and Rain podcast. I'm Tamara, founder and editor in chief. After over 20 years in the fashion and magazine industries, I launched StoryandRain.com, a digital fashion, beauty, and lifestyle publication where we're bridging the gap between reading a magazine and shopping its pages. On this podcast, you'll discover the emerging trends and tastemakers that matter right now. As a catalyst for creativity and through candid conversations with our community of cultural arbiters, we're your resource for discovering today's most interesting people, projects, and products. And we'll explore the origins for game-changing ideas and careers. With our high-low approach to style and the belief that there's magic in the mix, we're going to inspire you to live your most stylish life. Playful Defiance is how one of fine jewelry and award-winning platinum smith Deirdre Featherstone's beloved clients describes the sensibility of her collection. The one-time antiques auctioneer since childhood has been building things and grew up in a family who did the same. Her father would often disappear to the store for a gallon of milk and come back with a car for fixing. With a deep understanding of materials and value culled during her time in antiques and her homegrown skill for working with her hands, Deirdre turned her talents to jewelry design after being stopped on the street by a prospective customer who admired the pieces she was wearing that she'd made for herself. With a private atelier in Manhattan and a curated collection exclusively at Bergdorf Goodman, clients come to Featherstone Design for her use of superior color gemstones and the detailed way in which her pieces function. On this podcast, we talk about the intimate relationships Deirdre has with both her materials and her customers, a lifetime of working with her hands, the focus she's placed on creating convertible pieces, how she combines luxe quality with a sense of humor, her sources of inspiration, including the unique perspective her daughter brings, a deep dive into gemstones and platinum, and more. Plain and simple, born to create, here's Deirdre Featherstone. Deirdre, where did you grow up? I grew up in Montclair, New Jersey. And what did you love as a child and a teen and into your 20s? What were the things that you loved? Oh, my goodness. I think I loved my bicycle. I loved my bicycle because it represented escape. <laughs> Actually, I loved my bicycle. I loved it. And he loved my bicycle because it gave me the opportunity. I think I was always mechanically inclined, so I would take things apart. And that was one of the you know, things that I would you know, do, I would take things apart and put them back together. And, and I think one of the things about that was you had a sense of your own freedom, but you had a sense of how you could access it too. So mm-hmm. mechanically, I think I was always interested in, you know, that kind of thing. But at the same time, I was, you know, it can, it, it also represented something else. It, it represented, you know, me under my own power, if for, for lack yeah. of a better. That's interesting. So how, what is your earliest memory of taking something apart as a child and like putting it back together? Were you really young, super young? I was very young. Yeah. I was always taking something apart and putting it back together. That's so interesting. What did you study? Studied. um, Well, I, I studied economics and art history, architectural history, really. Um, and I, I went to Rutgers University in New Jersey. And um, I think one of the things is my both my parents um, did not come from here. So I think I was always sort of interested in art and 
and uh, the creative parts of the world. But I don't think anybody who comes from another place, another country, like leaves everything that they own so that their firstborn can be an artist. <laughs> so, you know, I think that there's a kind of a thing that goes with that. You do something practical um, to make sure that you can, you know, have a living and, and take care of yourself. Where are your parents from? My mother's from Ireland and my father was from England. That's right. And to, going back to kind of making things, taking things apart as a child, did you have an affinity also towards making things when you were younger, aside from taking the things, uh, things that you owned or played with apart? Did you, did you, I, did I you definitely, create and I mean, make? Yeah, we, I mean, for, I, I think I was very fortunate. I grew up in a family where, you know, anything that we were discovering was really encouraged. My father was a science teacher and um, he was always, I think, very encouraging about learning how things worked. And, and as being the oldest, you know, he was, if he needed a hand with something, he'd say, oh, can you help me with this? Or can you help me with that? And he was just, he was always sort of creating through his hands. And he had a, definitely an alternative perspective. So I, I learned, I think, a lot of things from him in that way. He, um, one of the things that I, I, I think was so specific to his brand of thinking. And there are a lot of stories I could go on for, but I'll only go with this one. He was a, a teacher and he taught science and he was in middle school. And often he would get kids in his class who were, you know, raising a ruckus, causing trouble, this and that, the next thing. And he would sit them down and he would say, I am not gonna invite you to stay after school with me where we do really fun things if you're going to act like that. So you got to hold it together during class. And then he ran like this after school, like, like, you know, when you were a bad kid, you'd get held after school. Yes. You had to be extra good to stay with him. He goes, why would I want to spend another minute with you people? If you, <laughs> you know, right. as he had his perspective, right. which was just, and it kind of, you know, so many of the students that he, he had sort of were, you know, maybe came from a place that was, it was a little less fun to go home than other people. So, right. you know, so he created this environment and it was um, creative and nurturing and fun and, and interesting. And it made these kids, you know, proud of whatever they, he taught AV or they were, you know, making volcanoes and blowing things up back in the day when you could do that. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, it gave them a real sense of, of pride. And I think as his his kids and my mom's kids, um, you know, that was something that was instilled in us. We, we would, whatever we worked on, we did it thoroughly and thoughtfully. And, you know, he would always, he would say, uh, if you don't understand how it works, study it. Oh, interesting. That's where that idea first yeah. took root in your, in your psyche. Yeah. Cause uh, you can really, the more time I think you spend looking at something, the more time you can understand what it's doing what is an inanimate object's trajectory if you have studied it you know which i think that leans very heavily into what i do right now because yeah. you know i i think that that has a has had a huge influence in terms of how i build how i engineer and how i see and uh yeah. were you a collector of things also i was i actually keep a uh uh, report card in here from fourth grade where I was in trouble for 
bringing my little things, my little miniatures to school because I couldn't stand the idea of not having something to do. Oh, and okay. so, you know, yes, there were little miniature things that I made and collected and it was for a while, it was teeny meeny little shoes and I built dollhouse furniture. It was always miniatures though. It was always something. I had a feeling, I said, I bet she, collect <laughs> she collected, but it were miniatures. That's interesting. It was always miniatures. Yeah. I made like <laughs> sailboats. I actually copied, which is probably around someplace. I copied a sailboat when we were kids, you know, in the summertime, you know, we, we would be sailing and um, I copied one of the boats and just carved it all out of like found stuff. You know, the rudder and tiller were like the little beer can things, you know, you wow. tore them apart and cut them into the appropriate shape. So there was always, a, you know, shackles and pins were made out of straight pins and I had some little pliers and I had them all working and stuff like that. So there was wow. always some little madness at work, I think. Wow. And tell me about your life as an antique auctioneer. That was fun because I mean that, you know, I think if there's one word that describes almost everything that I love, that it all has in common, it's detail and um, studying things from back in time, there seemed to be much more time allocated to creation. So you could really get a first hand uh it was, you know, I was in charge of not just auctioneering the things, but I was in charge of cataloging them. So we would do a sale once a month. It was 1,200 items, and it was everything. I mean, it was, wow. you know, beer stat paintings to um, beautiful sets of china to silver to um, an ironing board. I mean, anything that came out of a house ended up in this auction. And you would just run through. I ran through the sale with a gentleman who I absolutely adored and he taught me everything and he, he used to kill me because i he just he 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 would i would say what is this joe just tell me what this is and he's like i'm not telling you what that is you just get one of those books there and look it up i'm like right. but you know the answer right <laughs> he's right. like look, look it up look it up <laughs> oh, take look me 10 it. minutes to find it but once you sort of had that you like owned it and it was tedious but worth and it. And how did you how did you make your way into that business? Was that just a function of having studied art in college or I it accidentally ended up I was working um when I graduated from from Rutgers I you know my first job I was working in a little day daycare center. I a lot of little like one-time experiences I was working in a daycare center and this was one little boy who said to me you know he was tiny he said you know I was making meals or whatever and he said I can't eat peas. And I'm like, that's ridiculous. Everybody can eat peas. And so he goes, no, if I eat peas, I'm going to throw up. And I'm like, you're not going to throw up if you eat peas. That's the dumbest thing. So I gave him the peas and he ate them and he threw up, which was <laughs> one of the first times I realized if, if a three-year-old tells you something, you need to listen to it. <laughs> so, so that was like, I think, a formulating moment where I'm like, okay, I'm going to listen to small people. Um, the second thing I ended up doing was the um, executive buyers training program at Bloomingdale's, um, and I was in that for quite some time, and and it was it was a lot of fun, but that is that was some heavy duty lifting. That was an interesting thing, and I ended up leaving there and going to work for a small investment company. And my boss said to me one day, "I need the contents of my house appraised. Here's a listing of an old appraisal. Could you go over?" take this over to this auction house, which was local. It was in Orange, New Jersey. And <clears throat> walk in and, you know, give the this man this piece of paper. 
Okay. So I go over and I walk in and I'm like, what the heck is this? I had no idea. And it was, there were all of these amazing like shapes and forms and colors and all these like these objects, you know, and it was just shocking. And so I gave him the paperwork and I'm like, this is so interesting. So what do you do? And, and, uh, he, he said, you know, he told us all about, told me all about it. And then I said, well, if you ever have any kind of an opening, um, you know, I'd be interested. And he said, how good are you at computers? And that was back in, I don't know, 84, 85. I'm like, I'm excellent at computers, actually. I said, that's what I do for my job. And I'm, you know, it was like DOS. And remember the days when you push one button and the whole thing goes away? He goes, you are? And I'm like, I'm actually very good at it. Right. And uh, he said, well, uh, somebody gave notice two hours ago that runs the auction department and all the accounting and all the things. And I'm like, and, and he said, when could you start? And I'm like, I'm going to call my boss now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. I, you know, and they knew, I mean, they knew that I was, you know, probably not going to stay in investments for life, but it was. So yeah. I started the next week and uh, I did that for, oh, for years. You know, I, I, he was such an interesting person because he basically, I, after a while I had it where I could work three weeks for him and I could take one week for myself. And that's when nice. you know, I was building my jewelry during that time. Oh, and, that's right. That was going to be a question for you. And yeah, it was just, you know, I, I was interested in, you know, obviously making things, but it, parallel with learning about um, the construction of older things from cataloging jewelry and some of the thought process that went into some of these pieces of jewelry, the way they could come apart and go together. And when you were in that, when you were in that role, Deirdre, what would you say? What skills did you possess that made you good at it? And what did you develop and sharpen over those years? I think that the skills that I had that were good, I um, always have been interested in, in, uh, I'm an observer of detail. Um, the fourth grade report card said that I make no differentiation between um, something which is important and something which is not important, and they all get equal time, which I think I still am like that. <laughs> and, um, but I think one of the things about that was that it allowed me to look at things. I would t I would take my time looking at things and and observing. Um, everything that went into them the methodology the thought the everything what did it do was it successful and and I think that that was just that's a quality that I think has really helped me because I I'm a jeweler and often called a jewelry designer but I'm a bench jeweler is that's the thing that that's where I started is on the bench making stuff um you know taking bicycles apart I've taken several of my cars apart, put them back together, a couple motorcycles. So I've, you know, I just wanted to see Lego. Lego was huge. Lego was one of the, my brothers and I, my Lego came, when my mom would go back to Ireland, they would shoot, you know, like we would get like some Lego and it wasn't like kits. It was Lego that we do. And my brothers and I would, we had this Lego box, which was an old luggage, an old suitcase. And, um, you know, the, the kinds that had like the green edges and the rolled tops and the little leather handle with the stitching and right and the the lego box we would we would play with it and and i would build 
all these different things and my brothers would build all these different things and they would mix up all their colors. <laughs> I'm like, can I, I, I can't build this, you know, like white house. I, I need some white bricks. They're like, just use a red brick. I'm like, I can't put a red brick in the middle of a white house. Come on now. Right. You're always a visual person. So. <laughs> always visual. They didn't care. They didn't care what color the houses were. <laughs> yeah, it's attention to detail, but it's it's yeah, it's a, it's a, just being a visual visual person. And speaking of cars and motorcycles, um, you're a huge car and motorcycle enthusiast. You've just explained that. But how did you first get into each? When did when did things sort of take a turn toward motorcycles and cars? My mother, um, when we were growing up, my uh, my my father literally could go out for a gallon of milk and come back with a car. Um, at, at a certain point, my mother was terrified to even let him go out, like to get milk, anything. Um, but for her, for her 40th birthday, he gave her a motorcycle and she just looked at him like he'd lost his mind. And, um, but she learned to ride it. My mom is not, I'm not allowed to say how old she is, but she's a, a person of my age is appropriate age for a mom, which is older than 60. And, and, um, she was the president of the junior league. And at the time, the Montclair Junior League was merging with the Montclair Newark Junior, the, the Newark Junior League, because they wanted to bring all their resources together and really, you know, be able to do a decent job in helping some of the community in both places. So she was instrumental in that. And she used to take her motorcycle and ride it to junior league meetings, which I think to myself at the time, it was just my mom doing my mom things. Right. But she was shocked when all of us <laughs> ended up with bikes, but she taught us to ride. And uh, so we, we had a pretty big front yard. It was a field and uh, we would ride circles in the front yard. And, you know, every once in a while we'd go somewhere else, but <laughs> it was so, so I think that, you know, it, it was always these, my dad being interested in cars, my mom just being interested in running a family and, and, you know, holding it together. She's more of the financial side of the brains of the deal. So, um, also very creative, but, but I think everybody in my family just sort of, we all liked each other. So we liked spending time. So if, if my dad was sewing something, we were all sewing something. My brothers were making pajamas, and once again, their pajamas was out of like five different pieces of fabric. <laughs> I love. I mean, this is your 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 a big family of makers. It's just like let's make and create. And yeah, we 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 did a lot of that, and we uh, we really enjoyed. I think our time together, and, and we and were, my my one thing I'll say is I don't know how my mom. My mom is a was a, an amazing gardener and I don't know how she put up with it, but I had more sheets on the grass, you know, spilling oil from some vehicle or she, I don't know how she put up with it. I really don't. So, but she did. And uh, you know. there was gardening in the mix too. And so then when did things take a, things took a tor turn towards you, you really loving towards the worst, you know, like when I quit everything else. <laughs> And so when did jewelry sort of emerge as something you wanted to focus on? You know, I think, um, you know, I often tell this story. I was 13, I suppose, 13 or 14 years old. And, you know, it was my friend and I jumped on a bus and we came into New York and we had, were wandering around and I ended up finding the jewelry district. And ah. I 
I don't know where I thought jewelry came from. You know, I I just it it hadn't occurred to me. You know, as I said, it wasn't the we, we weren't the kind of family that. You know, jewelry was an obsession or a thing. It was it just wasn't. Um, but I found the jewelry district, and I was always interested in silver. And I ended up walking into a place called Myron Toback. And Myron Toback was a findings house here in town. And um, Mr. Toback, Myron Toback himself, came over and he says, oh, can I help you with something? And I'm like, I want to make things. And, you know, I, I, I have $25 and I would like to buy some tools and, you know, some supplies to make something. And I said, what would you start with? So he took me over and he showed me what he would pick. And it was like a saw, a couple pairs of pliers, and this and that. Next thing he goes, well, now you need some, some metal to work with. And I said, oh, wonderful. I just love silver. And he goes, well, silver is very expensive to start in. And, and maybe you should, let's start you off in copper. Hmm. And I remember saying to him, Mr. Toback, what if it comes out good? Then I'm going to have a piece of copper jewelry and I'm not going to wear that. I love it. I love it. And he was like, okay, well, there's some logic there. And <laughs> very glass half full, you know, not yeah, half full. Well, you know what? When what my, if I do a smashing job with And it? then I'm stuck in bad material and I can't do it again, you know? <laughs> but, but I think one of the things that was so cool about that is when we won our first, uh, one of our first Spectrum Awards, the first phone call that I got was from Joy Toback. Wow. Who said, I've been telling you for years. And I'm like, well, you know, wow. Joy, I, I do my thing. You know, I'm, you know, I, I, I'm just doing what I'm doing, you know? Yeah, that's incredible. Who was your first customer, Deirdre, jewelry customer? Oh, wow. Remember? Um, I do remember, yeah. I, it hadn't occurred to me to actually sell jewelry. Sell, no, right. You know, I, I, I'm not sure where I, like, I kind of missed the step. It was just, I was just making things and it, I guess it just never occurred to me. And I was walking through, um, the Marstown antique show and somebody came up to me and they said, what is, what are you wearing? And I said, oh, it's a, you know, he said, that's so amazing. It's so interesting. He goes, you yeah. know, I'd like to get something like, like that for my wife. And he said, where would I get something like that? And I said, oh, I don't know. And I was with a friend and she said, she she'll make it. that for you. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, oh, yeah, I'll, I'll do that. I can do that. <laughs> and, and so um, I ended up making a piece for for her for her 40th birthday. And at the time I did mostly, you know, I... I did mostly, I didn't do any soldering at the time. I was using piercing, sort of sewing things together with metal. Um, it was all silver, but it was all kinds of findings and attachments that I could make that were non-soldered attachments, strong and and uh, capable, but you know, I wasn't soldering and I was terrified of fire. So um, it was a while after that, that I ended up learning to work with a torch. and. Um, anyhow, I remember they came to my apartment and I set up everything on, you know, like a, an ironing board or some display thing. And they, I'm like, this is, I was so nervous. I still have a drawing of the first piece. Oh, wow. That's fantastic. It was crazy. And, and I think it was, 
I can't even remember. It might have been $75. But I made a necklace and a pair of earrings. And they were kind of a little bit abstract, like kind of calderish shapes, which were all attached together with all kinds of wacky mechanisms. And I want to say, I don't know, six, eight, ten years ago maybe, um, my husband is saying, oh, I'm going to have some friends come out and come out to the house and I'm like oh that's nice I'm kind of I'm married to him I'm not really hardly listening to him (laughs) okay sounds good you know I did ask one of my friends one time what was the success to his marriage and he said I only listen to her three percent of the time (laughs) I'm like then I'm doing great because I'm listening to him like 10 percent of the time (laughs) right 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 anyway so he's he's like he's gonna have some friends over and I'm like that's great you can have some friends over that's fine we're gonna do that and he said well they'll be out for the weekend I'm like that's wonderful this and that the next thing and so after he tells me this like four times and I'm like fine whoever's coming is fine it's good and then he says the name and I said did you just say that's crazy that's crazy wait do they live in New Jersey? And he's like, yeah. I'm like, like Lake something drive in New Jersey and Sparta or something. And he's like, uh, I don't know. I guess I could look. And I'm like, he hadn't talked to them since fifth grade. They all somehow or another reconnected. Turns out it was my first client. That is that is such an unbelievable. Bananas. It was, I had, and I had, I don't know, the, my photograph like box sort of exploded and the necklace picture was in there and there was a picture of the two of them and I'm like Wilson it this is this is his wife and this is the first piece I ever sold and and you know he what a moment what a reunion it was mind-blowing she brought brought the necklace she's like it's still one of my favorite pieces and I was like you know I just was kind of blown away and that's Wilson my you know my husband was the one who kind of said to me he says why don't you quit all the rest of the stuff you do which is there you go you know, just yeah. do jewelry. And, and I'm like, no, I'm good. I, you know, where am I going to get cash flow? I buy and sell like antiques. I would load a truck and drive it 12 miles and sell it somewhere else and make days pay and carry on, you know? And he's like, you know, Deirdre, a lot of people can buy and sell antiques. Nobody can make what you're making. And I'm yeah. like, now there's a man who does who who must be in love with you because <laughs> that's, that's he was probably making mud pies. He'd have been like, you should have a mud pie business. No, but that's it's you know he 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 forced you, he guided you to focus on your gift on one thing. You know? Yeah, I also think that he was really sick and tired of me like selling all the furniture in the house <laughs> every time he went on a business trip and i'd change it up <laughs> like i wonder if i can go home just well, once <laughs> so deirdre it's uh, this your very first piece you were asked to make for some someone it started off with you approaching the, this or you know you you made this first couple this first piece and it, it seems like you had an affinity towards silver toned metal and now you're considered a master American platinum smith. So how did you come to focus on working with platinum for your jewelry? It seems like that sort of silver tone was what you had an affinity for. Yeah, you know, I think, you know, I, I think if you think about it, I, I think the silver tone, when you look at, you know, when you look at a tricked out bike or a car, it's always chrome. That's it's right. Always, That's, you know, there's that. that reference. I said there's got now I just made that connection. Right. I think, you know, I have never really thought about it until you just asked it. But there's always that. And I think there's also a thing, you know, obviously going with silver. Um, 
and you know mastering silver it's i would from my personal opinion it's the most difficult of the metals to master because just technically when you're working on it let's just say you want to solder you know this side of your piece of metal and you know there's something over here all of when you're working on something silver the entire piece has to be heated so while you're connecting something over here you're having to be really careful that something is not undoing over there because you're you're working in like like little tiny increments of degrees to not melt this while you're joining this. So it's a very much of a step, like a stepping project, like, okay, this can melt at this temperature and this can, and then so you're working your way either up or down, depending on what you're doing. So when you, when I then started and transferred over to gold, I had a friend who owned a boutique in New Canaan uh, called Larmar. And she said, you know, you should always work in 18 karat gold because it really tells people how you feel about your work. And I thought, oh, well, that's you know good advice. And I remember building the first piece that I built and thinking to myself, this piece is as, as was as expensive as everything I've done up to date, which isn't really true, but almost it felt like that. And, and gold was $220 an ounce then. And now we're at, I don't know, maybe somewhere around 2000. So it was, it was crazy how much, but, but then sitting on a bench with it, you have this freedom because you're just like, I'm working on this over here and nothing's melting over there. And mm. so technically mm. that part is, it's much easier. And, um, and then I think when I went, you know, I think from studying antiques and, and being in the antique auction house, I think the most beautiful pieces of jewelry that I ever saw, they were always platinum. Mm. And I mm. thought, you know, there's something, it was just from the observation, if, if it was in platinum, the workmanship was better. Um, the stones were generally better. There was a, it was almost like you had to earn your way into it. it had, yeah. Yeah. And it was more expensive and it's more dense than gold. So even if you have, you know, the same, like one square inch by one square inch by one square inch, it's still more metal because it's denser. Right. And um, so you had to have a certain skill set to work in it. So I started working in it. I took some, um, some pieces and I started practicing in it. And I, was, I also took a course, there was a week long course in um, GIA that gave you kind of some fundamentals after I had started working in it. And it was amazing because I've always wished that I had a classical education in, you know, metalsmithing. Mm. And there are a few places in this country that do it. But, um, you know, one of the things, like, if you could do anything. Um, I was going to say, is that on a list of, like, go and pursue and do that? Or? You know, yes, but no. Because I think one of the things that I did learn is sometimes you're even more efficient when you don't know what you're not supposed to know. Right. I got into this platinum class and I was doing the, the work and the the teacher was explaining something and I'm like, well, you would just do it like this. He goes, no, you can't do that. And I'm like, no, no, you can't do that. And he's like, I don't even remember what it was. And he goes, no, that won't work. And I'm like, yeah, well here, look. <laughs> and, and he's like, well, well, I guess it will. And I'm like, and so you don't know what you don't know, you know, don't know what you don't know. That's a good one. That's true. And, and it, it's, so I, I think having, having that as a compliment to what I was doing, um, 
I always say that I think platinum is really an addictive metal to work with. Mm. It's, it's both challenging and it has this, it's almost like you're having a two-way conversation with it. You're sitting there and you're working on it. And because you're working in such high temperatures, you are also wearing welding glasses. So you barely can see what you're doing. So all of your time is in the setup. So you set up something, you set it up, you get everything just right. And you're, uh, and you're also keeping in mind that if you're working with, you can't work with traditional tools because they'll melt prior to your metal melting. So there's all these different layers of how am I going to do this? Like, you know, it's like probably like Sudoku or those games where like, okay, how am I going to do this? And, and I think that the setup, the tools that you're working with, the kind of being blind doing it is so completely challenging that when you see, like for instance, a solder joint, all you see through your welding glasses is this shade of red, which is really, I think, if it was a gemstone, it's a fire opal, like a Mexican fire opal. It's like a line of a Mexican fire opal where you just see this successful joint. So all it's done is tell you that you're just perfect because you made this great joint. And it doesn't tell you if you don't see that line, then you didn't do a job. It doesn't say, oh, you did it wrong. It just says you did it perfectly or there's no reaction at all, right? So, you know, so... I think from from just working with it and getting, you know, accomplished with it and 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 really in a way kind of getting intimately involved with it. And it's it, it is like an intimate relationship. Having an intimate rela- yeah, I was going to, yeah. that's exactly what I was going to say. Um it's you it's challenging, but there's a thrill there too. It's there's a total thrill. It's it's challenging in its you know, I I often laugh because George Carlin had this whole thing about cats and how cats are always doing something. And when they do some, like they'll jump from the couch to the this, to that, to the curtains. And then all of a sudden they splatter and they fall down on the floor and they like strut to like behind the couch where they're like, ow, ow, ow. But as they're strutting on the front, then you only see them saying, I meant to do that. <laughs> you know? and, and they're behind the couch and they're like, oh, that's right. And, and I think kind of like that's what <laughs> that's sort of what like working with platinum is like on the front side you're like I got this in the back you're like how the hell am I going to do this? <laughs> yeah, that's 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 a very um that is an addictive that's an addictive relationship to have, right? Yeah, I get that. It really is. It I really is. Really get that. And yeah. you're known for your convertible jewelry, really intricate fine jewelry pieces that combine seamlessly to make entirely new designs. So why do you find it important to focus on that feature, on the convertible feature? I think um, I think convertibility, um, it really, you know, I feel like you give the power back to the owner, the wearer, the, the person. It's the same respect that you have back and forth with platinum or any of your gemstones or any anything. You have also built these relationships with these fabulous women who basically are participating with you. So I make you something, right? And you're like, oh, Deirdre, I'm wearing this and I'm wearing it like this. And then I'm like, you can take those drops off the bottom. And you're like, 
oh my goodness, I love the idea of taking the drops off the bottom. And then I'm like, you know, you call me a week later and you're like, you know, I think this would really look good if I had like a different set of drops. And so, you know, we chat and I say, oh, okay, what are you, what are you thinking? And you say, I'm thinking that this would be really harmonious with this color. And I, so I'll source that and find that and then I'll build that and, you, and you'll have participated. But well, it, it all becomes a constant conversation. It's a constant conversation. And it's not like, you know, it, it's this thing where I have an idea, but they're not all my ideas. You know, there's this, this back and forth and I'm, I am so often inspired by like, what is it that you want? What is it that you see? How do you perceive, you know, your, and, and you listen to women over 25, 30 years, whatever I've been doing this for. And they're like, I don't like the way my ears are pierced. One's this and one's that. And, and I'm like, don't worry, I'll engineer that stuff out. So it's, in, it's one of my questions for you was, do you have clients that inspire you to create? And the answer is yes. Oh my goodness. So, uh, you know, how could you not? The the I think because of the conversations and because of the joy and because of the enthusiasm and because collaboration. Collaboration. We are if I were to I if I think if I'm to describe my client, she is a self-purchaser. She um she's neither concerned uh with trends or she's expressing her own self she's the last person in the world who's going to wear a label on the outside you know she's like here's what I, here's what i'm doing here's what i have to say here's here i am this is the way i am but i think she's also a person when when we get together something evolves where it it, it doesn't just evolve it ignites and I think what happens is when that woman walks into the room with that piece of earring or, you know, necklace, I, I consider myself an earring line, so we'll speak about earrings. But mm -hmm. when a woman walks into a room with a pair of earrings that you don't know if they're real, you don't know if they're costume, you don't know, you don't know what is happening. You want immediately to go over there and have a conversation with her mm. and say, you know, not how much money is it? Oh, I'm going over there because that looks like a big diamond ring and, you know, we're going to have big chat. I love that so much. I can't and, talk so much But about. what is happening over there? Why is she so interesting? Why did she choose that? How did she get to be so bold and, you know, with all those colors or whatever? I want to know her. I want to know her. I want to know what she thinks. And, and I built this because I was also shy and I wanted to have command of my own environment when I walked into a situation that was intimidating. And why do you think you were shy? We talked a little bit about your childhood and we talked about your family and that everyone loved spending time with one another. Where do you think this sort of shyness comes in? Is it just... Um, I think a, everyone a has creative, a creative that sort of has a propensity to being in, the, in their own world, taking apart, making, disassembling. Is that well, just I'm still a weirdo? You know, <laughs> I mean, it's just a weirdo. But, but, but really, I think if we're all honest, I think almost every one of us, when we have to walk into a new situation, and we're we're we walk into a room and we're assessing ourselves. We all say, how can I be my best self? Am I less than? 
another person in this room? How do I feel like I'm less than? And as, as, as Jill always knows, look at this over here. Tell your publicist. Yes. <laughs> Let's get that. Look Let's at this get... thing over here. It's shiny. Right. Don't right. look over here. Well, on the, on the same topic of clients, what kinds of clients bring you joy? You talked a little bit about who your client is and the relationship you have, but if you could, if you could put into words, what kind of a client brings you joy? What is that? I will tell you, I think it's, first of all, I think if you've, if it, what has happened over the years is if we've had an interaction and a moment and we make a connection, then we are always there for each other. So the client who, like the woman who, that I am lucky enough to be involved with just the nature of what I do and the nature of who she is and who I am. There's already a conversation. There's already communication. There's a, it's somebody who's taking a little bit of a risk. Then there's me who's pushing that risk harder. And then there's them who's meeting that risk and taking me, you know, and raising me one. And so it's this constant thing of, you know, I thought I couldn't wear this. I'm like, you can. And then they go out and they're like, oh, I own this. Like a week later, they're like, I totally own this. This is, you know, so there's this constant, like, like, I don't know, maybe a, a, a growing of, here's my level of confidence. I'm stepping up to it. I'm surpassing it. And now I'm going to, now I'm going to, now I'm going to raise her one and I'm going to bring her to the next. So we, we have this kind of thing that goes back and forth. And I feel like it's a mutual boosting of confidence in a way. It it is. And you're reinforcing my talents and my designs and I'm helping you understand who you are in relation to these pieces. Well, I also think that my work, um, in has a has an in, has a great sense of humor because there's a, mixtures of materials that traditionally they have no business being together um you're taking things that you know one wouldn't jump on a subway and ride around with and you're mixing it in a way that it looks like costume or it doesn't or you've taken colors that are non-traditional colors and you've mixed them with traditional colors and you've elevated the traditional colors. Um, and then you may have used something which is, you know, you can, I'm not saying like a $1 thing, but you know, it's like if you've taken like, you know, if you just outfitted your Rolls Royce with something from TJ Maxx. Well, you're keeping, you know? people, you're keeping people guessing and you're doing the unexpected, keeping people, yeah. keeping people guessing, doing the unexpected, was there something in you as a as a person that said, you know what, I don't want to be placed into a category. I don't want to be defined. What made you be this sort of rule breaker of things? Like I, I feel like I'm, I have a little bit of that in me. I have a very eclectic. There's a sort of an eclectic vein that runs through me and my choices in my life. What do you think that? Do you think you have that sort of same? What is that thing? You know, I think that. Um... I think that there are so many whether, you know, and I think we're having a real moment right now in time where there are all these, like there's like these little packages of how, you know, you're supposed to have this person is in this kind of a package and this one's in the next one. And I think from a very young age, 
because, I mean, I was the first person in my high school that took auto mechanics. And I, they, they, I did not have to fight to get into the class. But I'm going to say two years before me, they would have. But I was just on the cusp of the thing where, and I took auto mechanics and my benchmate was like, I got the only girl in high school as my auto mechanics. Ugh. And worst. Yeah. He, he said to me, he said, I will never, ever let my father know that you're my bench partner. Wow. And I thought to myself, oh wow. yeah, wow. And I didn't kind of get raised like that, but he did. And yeah. I was also better at it than he was. Well, that's there. And that's, that's and that's he always, he was, and it was for both of us, I, it was amazing because we were both generous. He's like, you're so good at this. And I'm like, I love this. And he's like, I don't understand how you know that. I'm like, well, just let's do this. And so we had this, you know what I mean? We we're only what, 14 or 13 at the time. And even though of the way he was raised, he wasn't really exposed to people like me. And I wasn't really exposed to people like him where they were like, oh no, you know, girls don't do that or, you know, whatever. And, and traditionally, I think also crafting jewelry is you, you much more see men on the bench than you do women. Yep. So I think that there was always that I'm going to, why wouldn't I do this? You know, so I always, it wasn't until probably 30 that I realized that, that I was probably not, you know, like the square peg in the square hole. And I think it was just because I, my parents didn't raise me to believe that, you know, it was like everybody had the same projects, you know, you build this, you sew this, you do this, whatever it is. My brothers and I, we all got these same projects. And, and so I don't think that I, I went into the world thinking that um it was different for everybody else but but it it truly was and and i think i was very lucky in that respect yeah back to your clients for a second um, what do you what do you think your clients love about you deirdre i think they identify with the there's a sort of a i think i can relate it there's this i one of them i'm going to actually quote her she called it joyful defiance. And I think that that is one of the most amazing compliments I think I've ever received because she didn't know me that long, but it was this, let's see what we can get away with over here, you know, and it's, and it's happy and it's fun and it's, and I do something. I mean, I do things that, I do things that make people happy. I was going to say, I, you know, I, I don't usually get called in for divorce jewelry, but I actually have been called in for divorce jewelry. And, and one of the, the nicest things was, is the husband and wife were having a difficult time and it wasn't working out. And he said, can I commission something for her? Because I love her deeply and I want her to go forward into the world, but it's not good. We are, we don't work, but she's a wow. wonderful person. And, you know, to make somebody a piece of jewelry to, very personal. I mean, divorce jewelry, and it's not like you know. I didn't change their wedding band to a toe ring. I've done that too, but you know, <laughs> it doesn't get more personal than that. It doesn't get more. There's honor. There's trust. There's there's, and we're storytellers. You know, we're we're all storytellers in one way or another. 
How do you source your materials, your gemstones? Did it take time to cultivate the right resources? I I am very, very fortunate because when I started um, doing my work, I was always interested in color and I was also interested in sort of alternative color. When I say alternative color, I'll say uh, like traditionally a sapphire is a royal blue. Traditionally a ruby is a, you know, is a red, red. Um, Traditionally, emeralds are green. Um, but I came up at the same time as a lot of the colored stone dealers who were working in these amazing colors, like sapphires that are, and a lot of people don't under, don't know this, but there's sapphires and lavenders and yellows and pinks and blue. I mean, all these greens and all these amazing colors were <clears throat> coming up. And opals, of course. You know, I'm known for a lot of my work in opal because... Um, it has such a giant range of color, but I think when they were coming up, I was coming up and I always had, you know, this is a pretty small community. So I would show them what I had done with their stones and, you know, like anything else, they're like, Oh my gosh, Deirdre would love this pair. So, you know, I would see material that they saw how I used what I was doing and then they would they would say, oh, she's, she would love this. She'll, she'll love this hue or she'll love this, you know, this will, this will be for her. And so, you know, you know, myself, I would see stones that, you know, prior to Tiffany, along with Jar, you know, all, all of these, these houses. And of course I'm not buying what Tiffany's buying and I'm, you know, but, but to be counted among the people who, appreciate that kind of color I feel very fortunate for that but I've also you know we all came up together so you know it's been sort of a shared journey and and uh you know spinels I mean spinels were not something that are a household word no years ago no no no. but they had such majestic shades and you could get them all to play well together and yeah and it 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 just they were just happy I've I think if I described the color that I use um and the relationships that I have with the gem dealers that I work with, they're happy colors and the people I work with are happy people. I love that. You create high value items for people who are ultimately making an investment, an investment in you. You talked a little bit about that. How do you know who to trust in business? Your vendors, resources, partners, and employees become an extension of you and the feather and featherstone fine jewelry i feel like you have wise words on that subject deirdre how do you I think you know i think you make a conscious decision at some point in your career um and i made a conscious decision after an episode which i didn't need to have um where i thought i am only going to work with people who i could leave my kid with, my dog with, my gems, you know, my safe open. I'm only working with people who I 100% know that I could leave any of those things with. And and I think you make a conscious decision at some point because there's so many people in this business and you can choose to work with excellent people. And so I chose to work with excellent people. Um, and those are the relationships that are, 
you know, I think those are the things when you, when, you know, people talk about ethics and business and ethics and in, you know, what you do. Ethics are not something that, you know, came up in the 90s. You know, when you're working with somebody who's like a fourth generation, you know, fourth generation family business, you know, they were either ethical for four generations or they weren't, you know? Right. I mean, I suppose somebody could turn it at some right. point, but but mostly they don't. Um, so so I, I guess you just make a conscious choice and and you've got to be able to trust your sources back to their sources back the whole way along the line and that is a hundred percent doable in our industry mm. because the stone dealer is going to know the miner the miner is going to know the mine the stone is good so you know how somebody works and along and and so it's it is a fairly transparent industry which mm -hmm. is it, which is kind of amazing but i also think that um you know you really do have to just make make a choice. And more generally speaking, when it comes to the people that you surround yourself with, what kind of people are a yes for you and what kind of people are a no? What is your what what is your instinct when it comes to that? Is there is there a If someone's rude to a, a waiter, that's a no. <laughs> <laughs> under under any circumstance, that's a no. <laughs> um, no, really, what is, who do I, I surround myself with people who are amazing, trustworthy. Um, trustworthy is, I think you can learn everything. Like anything that's in my business, I can teach. I can't teach you values. Either you got them or you don't. Um, I love people who have come to me through other people who I love. I met Jill through the UPS man. <laughs> <laughs> but that's because both of us has built a long-term relationship with him and he was somebody who was very special. And that's a beautiful thing. I mean, that story in and of itself is great. Yeah. Um, what inspires you? What, in what inspires you? I, I'm going to say what doesn't. It's it's more shutting it down than it is it, than starting it up. I mean, you if, keep a notebook by your. I mean, that, speaking of which, if if it's what you know more about what doesn't inspire you, are you someone that gets a flurry of ideas and you have to record them into a notebook or on your phone or how does that work for you? What inspires you and how do you record those ideas? I like paper, and I like I have kind of a paper and a pen obsession. I I love. There's Japanese paper with one millimeter grids. And where do you buy this paper? Oh my God. I order it from a place called Postal Co, but it's one millimeter grids. And you know, there's five millimeter grid all over the place, but graph paper. Um, but I think what appeals to me about this is that we are working in those kinds of sizes and one millimeter can blow or fix or create, or it can just totally make or break a design. So having something which is so precise and these little you know, three tenths of a millimeter point pens in every color you can imagine. You know, it goes back to that whole thing where even as a kid, I was writing as miniature as I possibly could. I, you know, doing the doll houses or whatever, I would like little handmade notes in the kitchen, you know, and they were to scale. So I think it goes back to, to that whole obsession with capturing 
something accurately tiny. So I never run out of ideas. I always find that everything that is around me inspires me. It's, it could be a color. It could be a, it could be anything. There's all these like triggers, a pair of sandals where I look at it and I'm like, well, those colors are, that's really good. I'm going to do that. And I'm going to, I'm going to take those colors and go into a pair of earrings with them. Or, you know, I mean, obviously architecture, architectural history is always interesting because of the applied ornament on things. So a shape, I've always looked at, you know, both facades and all the terracotta details on buildings and some of the soffits and the moldings and things. Those are, those are always interesting to me. Every field of design has some detail I'm working on a ring right now, which was supposed to be a gold, all gold ring. And I started looking at 1938 Bugattis. And <clears throat> so there's a detail on a 1938 Bugatti, which is so sleek and so well thought out and so streamlined that it just, it couldn't have been created by anything other than a human. Mm -hmm. It's thought it's visual and it's there's these lines that you look at and things and you're like just the shape would blow you away and then you have to drive it and it has to not fall apart so there's all these levels of design where where you can take elements that are beautiful and and sh and shaped and and really just created by the human hand and the human mind Mm -hmm. And then you've got to make them mechanical and functional and easy. And, and you have to be able to look at them and make them seamless. Here's another question. Who inspires you? We talked about what inspires you. Who inspires you? Oh, man. Well, my whole team here, they, they, they do for me, my whole gang here, um, they do for me what... I think I do for my clients. They request and ask and and help me bring myself to a better level. You know, I I will oh, I will always hand something across the table to Melanie and and say, "Okay, go." And she'll be like, "Nope. It's almost right, but it's not." And then she'll do something and then I'll take it back and I'm like, "It's pretty good, but I think we could do this to it." And so I think that you know, color-wise, Melanie and I work very, very closely together. And, you know, we just, we just have this exchange where I implicitly trust her. And remember that commercial, Mikey? Mikey, he likes Mikey. it. Give to Mikey, he likes it. Mikey, give it to Mikey, he hates everything. And then Mikey likes it, you know what I mean? There was one other person who was my Mikey. Right. This that is the new Mikey. I haven't thought about the Mikey life commercial in a while, but that's <laughs> that is that that's what the premise of that commercial was. Like, give it to this person that doesn't like any or like, <laughs> right? Yes, exactly. Right, right. Give it to Mikey. He hates everything. Exactly. Give it to Mikey, right? And then it's like, oh, Mikey, Mikey, he likes it. You know, mm -hmm, so funny. So you know, so there's, so I think that that you know, you have somebody who's doing that with Melanie does that with me. Mandy does that with me with words. You know, it's like, well, we could say this, or we could, you know, we can, and so we we have this sort of like ladder like effect where we were going like, well, I'll take this and I'll raise you one. And then Jill, I mean, it's the same thing. I mean, she's always like, well, this is what you're trying to convey. You can't skip the middle part. 
Right. Let's um, connect. And I'm already at the end part. Or, she's like, nobody knows how you got there or why. Or is let's, even... con let's connect the dots. Let's, let's connect the dots. Yeah. Let's, yeah. And, and so I think being surrounded by um, this kind of sort of amazing caliber people, amazing people who raise you up, you know, people who yeah. raise you up. Anyone else? You know, if you're lucky, yeah. your friends, you are the dumbest, least attractive person in the room. Right. <laughs> so if you're lucky. I like that. Anyone else besides internal team that inspires you in your work? Oh, uh, you know what? My husband is an, an, has an amazing aesthetic um, sense. He's When you first meet him, he sort of looks like a suit, and you're thinking to yourself, there's no way. Right. And, you know, I will, I make a living off of doing color. I will hand my husband three paint decks and say, pick a color for this room. And he will go through it. He'll pick a color. And I'm like, I don't even ask. Mm. I never relinquish that kind of control over color, but he's so amazing at it. So, wow. I mean, that's pretty, pretty uh, unbelievable. You know, my mom obviously is an inspiration. She has, uh. She has sort of the, the more, I want to say she's the more, I don't even know if it's practical. I, it, there's something about her. She's so intelligent. She's well-read. She's smart. She's interesting. She's fierce. And she has a sense of creativity, but she's also, she's got this sort of grounded practicality, which is, she's the first person who will say to you, you know, you come home with an A and she wants to know why it wasn't an A+. Plus. You know, can you do, how can you do better or be better or anyone else who gives yeah, I, inspiration in your life? My daughter is 22 years old. She is, um, attending BMCC right now, um, virtually like every student on this planet. That's right. And she attends a program called the Melissa, Melissa Riggio program, which is a program for people with special needs to attend college. My daughter is Down syndrome and I have never seen anyone thrive like this kid. When all of us here have like lost the plot, all we have to do is spend a couple minutes with her and, and she has never lost sight during this whole pandemic, during any of it, of joy. She's never lost any, she's just joyful and happy and making the best of and chatting with her friends and, She's so positive and she's just, you know, you just have to sort of come back home and, 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 you know, get a piece of Catherine, you know, she's really. What else, Deirdre, do you think we can learn from those with Down syndrome with, you know, your experience with this, your, you know, your 22, <laughs> well, 22 years of your life? As a mother, <laughs> you can check pride at the door <laughs> because. There is, there is, there is such an incredible sense of freedom and leveling that, you know, I can certainly speak to my experiences with Catherine. I, I, even when she was little, we would be walking through Soho and she would decide she was going to sit down and I would try to fight this because I wanted to go and blah, blah, blah. And then finally, one day I'm like, oh. And I sat down with her and we're like right on the corner of Broadway in the spring and the two of us are sitting there and I'm like, so what's happening here? And she was like, well, I'm tired of walking. I would like to take a break and thank you for stopping. <laughs> and I was like, well, okay then. Right. So we sat there for a couple minutes and she's like, 
I'm ready to go now. So I think that one of the things that's been so amazing about her is I don't have the same parameters for like like the race to the finish. She the goal is not the end. The goal is not getting there fastest. The goal is just like <laughs> figuring out, you know, what the next thing is. And and it's not it's just it's I think she's the one who's like kept us most in the moment. Kept me uh, most in the moment. That's a beautiful lesson. I wish I had a reminder for that in my life every single I'll day. send her over. I'll take I'll, <laughs> I'll take her. I'd love to hang out with Catherine every she's, day. She's like the first person she you know, like she's, I ride a motorcycle around sometimes and, and she is my riding partner and um, I have music on my bike and every once in a while I'll be riding someplace and I, there's all of a sudden she's like not there anymore. <laughs> like what is happening behind me? She is on the back of that bike and she is standing up on the foot pegs and she is dancing as we're because all of a sudden like the warmth of her body is gone and the next thing i know is i look in my mirrors and there's my kid dancing on the back of this bike and i'm like she just she lives every minute of her life two courageous ladies to be one <laughs> you know one the courageous bike and the other one dancing on the bike but yeah no i, I think courageous is motherhood if if that doesn't if that doesn't knock courage into you or out of you, nothing will, you know, that's uh, what did you, you know, what is Catherine's unique relation to creativity herself? Is there a relationship there? What do you see? I think hers is perspective. You know, I think that Catherine's perspective on things, you know, like for instance, the English language, uh, you know, she has figured out how to, for instance, we're driving in a parking lot one day and she says, uh, somebody, I'm going into a spot, but somebody gets in there beforehand. She goes, mother, that person is a complete rudetic. And I'm like, a rudetic? <laughs> she says, yes, mom, a rude lunatic. And, <laughs> and I'm like, anyone who could just, you know, readapt the English language <laughs> to suit her at the moment. It's just, the other day I was in the house and she's like, you're not the boss. And I'm like, what do you mean I'm not the boss? She goes, you're not the boss. And I'm like, okay. She goes, you know, you're wearing a ponytail. And I'm like, yeah. And I'm like, she says, you have no ponies. You cannot be the boss. <laughs> like, well, like there's actually, uh, uh, I, I, I get that. I, there's a thing there. I'm not sure what it is. I don't know what it is, but there's, yeah. there's something there. That's I told my husband the other day, she said to me, she said, my dad, he was born during the hot war. I'm like, the hot war? And she goes, yeah, not the cold war, the hot war. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, I'm like, well, I guess if there was a cold war, there's got to be a hot war. So it's um, just all the time. I love that. Deirdre, how do you get your best ideas? Is there a moment or, or a time of day or uh, when you're walking or when do you think the, the big ones come to you? I think, uh, I think mostly I'm a night thinker. So I think that, you know, I've always claimed that from 10 PM to 2 AM is are my time. That's my time slot. I don't get to access that that much anymore. Um, if I ran for, if I ran for president, school would start at 10 AM for children. Oh, I'm, and I'm with you. I'm with you there. Yeah. <laughs> that would be my platform. And probably that all women's clothes have to have pockets in them, serious <laughs> pockets, not just dumb pockets. Um, and, but I think I, I always find that the 10 p.m. to 2 a.m. 
slot, it's quiet. You can think, you can get out a pencil, you can draw, you can, you know, you can just think. But um, I also think when you're a person who observes, you know, you're walking around, you see things all the time, or, you know, when I think one of the most pivoting moments for me is when a client asks me for something or a friend asks me for something or if somebody tells me about something they don't like, you know, it's like, oh, she doesn't like that X thing to happen. So how would I solve that? So it's more like a puzzle kind of a thing. It's always inspired by some request or some sentence or something like that. Is there anything that you do when you're stuck to get unstuck? Hmm. Clean, clean, <laughs> clean. Yes, I do. I will, uh, yeah, I'll go try to make some order out of something that I find chaotic. That makes a lot of sense. What's next for you? Any new materials you're contemplating or new categories of design? Um, I think categories of design, you know, one of my favorite expressions is when, when they go low, we go high. Mm -hmm. I, I think that that has been, there's a, there's an element of that that is really kind of resonating right now. Or I guess it always has. We've been in this moment of contemplation, I would say. And I, in my own sort of way, have thought about the things that have been really important to me. And they're, they're, they're I'll just say in the jewelry category. And they are things that are important they are luxurious they are i don't know for me they're touchstones of something that i've made that i think is really special so my plan is to you know kind of slow cook the whole thing and instead of doing maybe three projects that are um I'm going to take three projects and I'm going to take the energy and the everything and I'm going to make them one project, one project that I would really, really want, you know, where you might do something which you're, where you were, instead of thinking, oh, if I could do anything I wanted, I would do this. I'm just going to skip that. I'm taking the if out and I'm just going to do what I want. Wow. And I'm not going to tailor it for anyone else or. Because you know what, ultimately what comes down to it is all the places where I've gone rogue have been the places where people have seen seen something. You can always bring it down a notch if they're like, I would love that, but that's like eight times larger than what I, but at least they saw it. That's great. That's a great place to end, Deirdre. Let's just finish up with a lightning round, quick lightning round. Favorite color palette? Peacock colors, purple, blues, greens, turquoise, teals. Favorite era for art and design? Favorite era? Oh, <clears throat> automotive, 1920s, 30s, eh, 40s, 50s is getting a little crazy. 20s, 30s, 40s. Are you reading or binge watching anything? I can't binge watch because emotionally I just get, I go there and the next thing you know is I become a character in a thing <laughs> and I have to use that energy for what I do. Um, the second part of that was binge watching or, or reading. Are you reading anything? Do you I have been? Re oh, yes. I have a friend who's been writing some amazing books. MJ Rose is her name. She just wrote a book called Cartier's Hope. And she just takes you. I like places. I like books 
that take you someplace. She she built a room in her book that I'm moving into. <laughs> you can come. There's enough room. I'll take oh, it. Okay. okay. Last question. Describe the Featherstone aesthetic in three words. Oh, um, irreverent, colorful, and um, includes a healthy fear of commitment. I love it. Deirdre <laughs> Featherstone, thank you for so much for being on the podcast. Thank so you. Great. Oh, it's so fun to see you. It's so fun so, to be here with you. So great to talk to you. You too. Bye. <laughs> Bye.